Hey everybody, good evening, Green World. Welcome back to a new edition of the Glenn Greenwald podcast. I guess I haven't yet devised a creative name for my podcast, so presumably it'll just be called that for all of eternity. It's the first uh, episode since the new year, so allow me to take this opportunity to wish everybody a happy new year. Hopefully you had a nice uh, break in between Christmas and New Year's and a good start to 2022. Given that tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the January 6th riot, or if you listen to corporate liberal media outlets, the insurrection, or even the coup, that is something certainly we ought to discuss. It will be a heavily discussed and exploited topic all day tomorrow. It already has been this week. I will be doing an episode with the I co-host with the formerly named Andre Domis, who has since changed his name to Q Anthony. So our schedule time had been Tuesday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. We've now changed it to, from now on, Thursday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. So it happens to coincide with January 6th. We'll certainly spend a lot of time talking about that. But since that's been a major topic I've covered all year, obviously not January 6th itself, but the reaction to it, the exploitation of it, the dangers that are continuing to arise from it, the civil liberties assaults justified in its name. The people who have been exploiting January 6th will be squeezing every last opportunity opportunity out of the one-year anniversary that they can for a wide range of motives. CNN, for example, celebrated the fact that January 6th was the most watched day in that network's 30-year history. They had something like Five and a half million people watching at the same time on average for January 6th. That's a network that almost nobody watches anymore. So obviously for them, it's important for that reason. It's important for Democrats because they think there is political gain. It's important for the security state because they believe that they can elevate fear levels using it and justify all new powers. So I want to talk about that in just a minute. But before I get to that, I want to spend some time talking about a truly bizarre debacle, just an absolute spectacle that happened in Australia today. Not so much because it in and of itself is a terribly important episode, but because it reflects so much about the irrationality, the complete uh, unscientific nature of our COVID debates, the way in which it's completely bereft of public health and every other value that's claimed and driven by almost everything but. And that is the first uh, decision by officials and authorities in Australia to allow the tennis star Novak Djokovic to enter Australia to play in the Australian Open, the Grand Slam tournament that starts next week. And when anger ensued within 24 hours, the Australian government did a complete 180 reversal, decided that no exemption was warranted for him to enter the country despite his being unvaccinated barred him from the country and after 12 hours of essentially detaining him at the border, sent him on his way. And I just want to discuss what actually happened there. There's some really fascinating components of this episode. And I think it tells us interesting things about how the COVID pandemic is continuing to unfold, the rationality that continues to govern how states, authorities, media outlets around the world continue to talk about it and exploit that as well. Uh, So before diving into that, uh, probably most of you already know the format here uh, with Colin is 
the app is designed to enable not just a monologue by me or whoever is hosting a show, but the thing that appeals to me most is that it is designed to be interactive, which means that when I'm done with my introductory comments, I will leave as much time as possible for a Q&A session and interaction with uh, the audience here. So if you have a question, if you have a comment, if you have a topic you want to propose, whatever you want to discuss with me, you can just click the raised hand feature. It will put you automatically in, in the queue and the sequence in which you do that. And I will then take questions and comments one after the next in the order in which you appear there. So I think these are two very meaty topics. So I'll just restrict my commentary to that and, and try and leave as much time as possible for the Q&A session afterward. So it may surprise some of you to know that tennis is actually a very long-standing interest of mine. Growing up as an American kid, I watched all the standard sports, football, basketball, baseball. Uh, my father was a gigantic fanatical sports fan, so I learned that from him. But into adulthood, I kind of gave up on the traditional sports. Tennis was always a very intense interest of mine growing up, both watching it and playing it, and both men and women's tennis. And that was the one interest in professional sports that I retained into adulthood. I've always found tennis fascinating, both the, the game itself on the court and the kind of politics and culture that has always swirled around it off the court by virtue of the fact that it's a sport that both men and women play equally. It's an international sport, so it brings together a lot of culture. It has always had its interesting political controversies that have been a window into other societal debates. And I think it continues to be. Um, I've talked before about a project I had uh, where I was going to produce a film about the Czech tennis star Martina Navratilova, who uh, emigrated from the United States, defected from Czechoslovakia in 1975 when she was 18 years old, when it was a communist country came to the United States. She was a huge childhood hero of mine. I was going to produce a film, a documentary, not just about her life, but about why she was such an important role model for me growing up. I was producing it with Reese Witherspoon, but Martina had made some comments that were deemed uh, to be anti-trans or turf uh, to express a turf ideology. She kind of became radioactive. It made it impossible to make that film. I wrote about that. Um, so I've always had a serious interest in tennis. I have a couple of friends that I, friendships I've developed with current professional uh, tennis players on the men's circuit. So it's something I pay a lot of attention to. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Novak Djokovic is definitely currently the greatest tennis player uh, on the planet, the best men's tennis player, and arguably the greatest player ever in history, in the history of tennis. There are two other major tennis stars still active who some people believe deserve that title. One is Roger Federer, who is now 40 years old. He's been injured over the last year. He's just got done with another knee surgery. There's a good chance he'll never play again, but he is not in Australia. He's not going to play at the Australian Open. So the only other major name, given that Serena Williams is by far the biggest female player, also is not going to Australia. I'm not really sure if Serena Williams is vaccinated or not. I haven't been able to find out, but she also is 40 years old. She's definitely slowing down. So she cited the fact that she just wasn't physically ready as her reason for not going. But with Serena out, with Federer out, 
even with Nadal going, he's kind of a little bit of a reduced figure at the moment. Djokovic is by far the most important star, to the, star uh, in this tournament. And the Australian Open is a gigantic and very financially lucrative and important sporting event. Professional tennis has four tournaments a year that are Grand Slam tournaments. One is Wimbledon, one is the French Open, one is the U.S. Open. And the fourth one is the Australian Open that takes place in January every year in Australia. It's incredibly important to tennis players. I think one of the things that often gets overlooked about professional athletes is they have this very unique situation that unlike pretty much everybody else, for example, if I have a talent in being a writer or being a lawyer or being a political commentator or a journalist, there never is a a time when I have to stop doing what I'm doing because my body no longer is capable of doing that. Maybe at some point we lose our mental capacity, but very deep into old age usually. Whereas tennis players have one thing typically that they do extremely well and they basically have 10 years or 12 years to earn money by doing that. And then they're done at the age of 30, 32, increasingly now maybe 34, 35 if they're lucky. So they have a limited number of earning years. These, these grand slams are extremely important to their financial well-being. The biggest stars, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Serena Williams, they're set for life. They are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm not talking about them, but I'm talking about even the people near the top of the game, in the middle of the game. Participating in these tournaments is, is crucial to their ability to provide themselves and their family financial stability. And it's also important for their careers. They are There are a lot of points awarded at these tournaments. How you do at these tournaments depends uh, determines where you fall in the rankings. That, in turn, determines what tournaments you can play in, how much money you can make. So it's hard to overstate the importance of these bigger tournaments for professional tennis players. Throughout 2020 and into 2021, as the vaccine for COVID became available, it started to be reported that a large number of the top 100 male tennis players in the world were unvaccinated by choice. They were refusing to get vaccinated. At one point, it was 60 out of the top 100. Then it became 40. They began pressuring these players to be vaccinated. But still, I think something like 30% of the top players were unvaccinated. And it was pretty clear, although he never was willing to explicitly say it, that Novak Djokovic himself was someone who was unvaccinated. That is now confirmed. He's always been kind of out of step when it comes to COVID orthodoxy. Even in April of 2020, at the start of the pandemic, before there was a vaccine, he said he didn't really believe in vaccines. He thought it was wrong to force people to take vaccines. In the middle of 2020, in the summer of 2020, when it was at the height of the pandemic, you weren't really supposed to even leave your house unless you were going to a Black Lives Matter a Black Lives Matter rally. For some reason, that was deemed permissible, but almost nothing else was. He organized a tournament in Serbia, which is where he lives and he's from. And it was very controversial that he had decided to hold a tennis tournament in the middle of a pandemic. And several of the players, including Djokovic himself, ended up contracting the virus and testing positive for COVID at that event. It was kind of deemed a debacle. He was widely criticized for it. But We know for sure, because of that, that he actually has gotten COVID at least once, which means he has some natural immunity. 
And he's been very coy about the fact about whether he has been vaccinated or not. When people ask him, he's refused to say. And it was all coming to a head because Australia has been one of the most hawkish countries when it comes to lockdowns and quarantines and imposing maximalist restrictions in the name of COVID. You've all seen those videos of camps where people are forced to go in order to quarantine if they end up positive or even if the government believes they've been exposed. And the Australian Open Tennis Association and the Australian government made clear for months that a requirement for entering this tournament, including entering the country, would be proof of COVID vaccination. That if you're not vaccinated, then you will be barred from playing unless you are one of, I don't know how many, but it's very rare, a million, one in a million, one in 800,000 people who have an underlying acute medical condition that prevents them from safely taking the vaccine. So essentially the policy of Australia is that no foreigners can enter Australia unless they have proof of vaccination, except in those extremely rare cases where they can demonstrate an acute medical reason why they can't get vaccinated. So obviously the question leading up to the tournament was, is Novak Djokovic going to play in Australia, in the Australian Open? And it isn't just that he's the biggest draw by far and therefore an extremely important asset financially to Australia, to the tournament, but he himself has won this tournament nine times. And currently he is tied with Federer and Nadal for most Grand Slams ever won in the history of men's tennis, they all, each of the three have won 20 Grand Slams. So he has the opportunity to break the record and win his 21st Grand Slam, which would put him ahead of both Federer and Nadal for the first time. Really kind of end the debate for most people, but he is, even though he's less popular than Federer and Nadal, it would be, people would be forced to accept that he probably does deserve the title of greatest player in the history. So it's a huge deal from a sports perspective, from a tennis perspective, but also from the perspective of Australia, for whom this tournament is very important, that Djokovic plays. And as the days were getting closer, he was refusing to say whether he was vaccinated. It became clear that he wasn't. He had entered a different tournament, a warm-up tournament in Australia, and then pulled out, clearly because he wasn't able to get an exemption for that tournament. And it was unclear what and its biggest star. Justifies and he will get barred. Two days ago, the Australian Open Tournament and the state officials in which the Australian uh, Open is played, which is Melbourne, I believe the state, the Australian state is Victoria, announced that lo and behold, it turns out that Novak Djokovic, arguably the planet, planet's fittest athlete, just so happens to be one of those extremely rare cases of somebody suffering from an acute medical condition that prevents him from being vaccinated. And therefore they granted him an exemption from the rule that you can't enter Australia or play in the tournament unless you've been vaccinated. Now, obviously, this doesn't even pass the laugh test or the smell test. The idea that 
this person who has been dominating this sport that requires extremely high levels of fitness all along had some secret underlying medical condition that prevents them from taking the vaccine. But the rules are the rules. He probably was able in Serbia where he wields enormous influence to get doctors to attest that he does in fact have this condition. It was submitted to the Australian authorities and they ruled on that. Of course, it is possible theoretically that he really is exempt, that he really does have a medical condition that prevents him from getting the vaccine. Although it's extremely improbable given that he has made statements in the past that indicated he does have an, an, an opposition as is his right or should be his right to taking the vaccine. So Needless to say, this announcement that he had received this exemption was treated with enormous amounts of skepticism and a great deal of anger. First of all, the mandate that the Australians enforced caused, I had said earlier, at least 30 or 40 percent of the top 100 players had been unvaccinated. The latest statistics is that 95 out of 100 are now vaccinated. So dozens of them ended up taking a vaccine they didn't actually want in their body because they were forced to. It was the only way they could play in this tournament that, as I indicated, is so important. So on the one hand, you have these players who didn't want to get vaccinated, but trusted that the rules were the rules and would be applied to everybody, including important tennis players like them. And they took a vaccine into their body that they didn't want in order to play. So imagine how they felt watching the number one player in the world remain unvaccinated and be told that he met the requirements for an exemption. Do you think they were happy about that? Do you think they felt that was fair? Then you have a really interesting group of people who decided that they didn't care that even though the Australian open is extremely important to their pocketbook, I'm talking about players who aren't number one in the world or number 10 in the world, but number 80 in the world or 90 in the world that on principle, they were not going to get vaccinated, even if it meant they couldn't play in the Australian open. One of those players is the American tennis player, tennis Sandgren, who I did develop a friendship with. He has been politically controversial over the years. And unlike Djokovic, who has won $130 million in career earnings and at least another hundred million or more in off court endorsements and, is, you know, an extremely rich person for life. Players like Tennis Sandgren, who have kind of been lagging in the top 100 for four or five years, he's 30 years old, he's currently number 95 in the world, doesn't have that financial security. I think he's made $4 million or so total in career earnings as a tennis player. He's obviously in the second half of his career because of age. $4 million might sound like a lot, but after taxes and travel expenses and paying coaches and knowing that your earning will stop when you're 32 or 34, being able to play in this tournament is extremely important. But there were a few of them like him who stood on principle and said, I'm not willing to be told that I have to take a vaccine I don't want into my body. And so he decided he wasn't going to go. He withdrew from the tournament. Several others did as well. Imagine what they feel watching Novak Djokovic be able to play despite being unvaccinated. But the real anger came from the millions and millions of Australians who have lived under extremely repressive conditions for two years now, have had their lives turned upside down 
in the name of COVID to watch these government officials allow a foreign national, a non-citizen of Australia, basically break the rules, presumably. I mean, we don't know for sure, but it certainly looked that way because of his importance. Obviously, there was a gigantic political reaction in Australia. The prime minister of the country originally supported the decision to give Novak Djokovic an an exemption. He said if the tournament decided that his medical documents justify an exemption, then we're going to support that. But given the political firestorm that was created, it became unsustainable. And 24 hours later, in fact, while Novak Djokovic was flying on a plane to Australia after it was announced that he got this exemption, the prime minister more or less said, we're not going to allow him into the country. We're going to stop him at the border. And if he can't satisfy us that he deserves an exemption, we're not going to let an unvaccinated person into the country. And that's exactly what happened. He arrived in Australia. He was kept at the border for 12 hours and then eventually told that his visa was invalid. It was being revoked. And he, as of now, is barred from entering the country and therefore barred from participating in this tournament. Now, the reason that I say that I find this interesting and worthy of discussion is because look at how completely unscientific and irrational this entire episode is. Try and locate the rational scientific or public health principle here. If you're Australia, why do you care whether Novak Djokovic is vaccinated or not? I understand that you might say that in order for someone to enter your country, they first have to demonstrate that they don't have the virus, that they have to have had a test, a COVID test within the prior 24 hours and can prove that it was negative. I think it's a legitimate position for a government to take. They don't want to allow people into their country who are carrying a communicable disease from which people are still dying. That seems rational to me. But what is the rationale for demanding that somebody be vaccinated, given that huge numbers of people who are vaccinated are now, especially in the world of the Omicron variant, contracting and transmitting the virus. You know, we've talked about this before on this show. I've talked about it elsewhere. I am vaccinated. I believe in the vaccine. I'm not worried as a result of getting COVID. Obviously, I may get COVID one day. It may actually kill me. But in the scope of risk that we all face every day, I I believe in the vaccine and the efficacy of it. If I were somebody who had gotten COVID, I would believe in the science of natural immunity. It wouldn't be something that I would worry about. But if I did decide I was going to worry about it, if I was neurotic about it, the thing that I would want to know if somebody was near me is not, are they vaccinated, but do they have the virus? But it doesn't matter. Novak Djokovic can offer to take a test every 20 minutes when he's in Australia and it will come negative and he still can't enter the country if he's not vaccinated. Why? How does that make any sense at all? You know, and the same question is asked of vaccine mandates in the United States and in every other country. Why should people lose their jobs if they're not vaccinated? Why should people be barred from entering events or airplanes or anything else if they choose not to get vaccinated, especially if they have natural immunity. But even if they don't, the only people they're hurting, if you believe in the vaccine, is themselves. And this is what has been so unscientific from the start about the idea of making 
it obligatory for people to take vaccines and punishing them if they don't. But that is what this is all about. You see people cheering the denial of the entrance into Australia of Novak Djokovic. They're so happy that he's being punished for the crime of being unvaccinated. It's, it's completely punitive. It has nothing to do with public health or science. Now, obviously, I do think that if you have rules that apply to everybody else, no matter how irrational they are, you should not be making exemptions for people who are wealthy and powerful. In fact, that has been another one of my major critiques of the American elite. How many times have people in public life got caught imposing on others COVID restrictions, which they themselves refuse to abide by? Nancy Pelosi in the middle of the pandemic, before there was a vaccine, when nobody was allowed to leave their house or open their business, decided it was important that she go to a salon and was caught walking around indoors in a salon without a mask. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, had imposed mask requirements and quarantines and lockdowns and got caught dining in an indoor restaurant without a mask. AOC and so many other celebrities like her were filmed indoors without a mask as their servants surrounded them, wearing masks, preparing her, doing her nails and her dress and her makeup and her hair in order to get her ready to go to the Met Gala. So this division, this two classes of citizens, has been disturbing from the start. So I don't think Novak Djokovic should have been given an exemption because he's important. I think the rules themselves should be applied equally. The problem is the rules are stupid. They're they're not really so stupid as much as they're irrational or at least bereft of science and public health. They actually are rational. The, the idea is to stigmatize and ostracize and punish people who aren't vaccinated by basically denying them the ability to enjoy life. And so now, I, I don't feel sorry for Novak Djokovic. Feel sorry for he's not on the list, but he's trained his entire life for events like this. He has achieved a level of athletic excellence, arguably unprecedented, and now he's barred from participating in his livelihood in the thing that gives him passion. For what? For what? What? Who is he hurt? Who is he harming? And I think this is the fact that there was this complete turnaround where they were all ready to give him an exemption and then decided to switch their decision, obviously not because of anything having to do with science, but only because of the politics. It was unsustainable to allow him to come into the country, given how angry people were, shows just how politicized COVID behavior is. My own view is very simple. In a post-vaccine world where vaccines are universally available in most countries, in many countries, certainly Western countries, everybody over the age of four can get a vaccine if they want one, can get boosted if they want, can now get boosted a second time soon if they want. I believe that vaccines are effective at preventing serious illness and death. And we know for certain that being vaccinated is not a guard against transmitting and, and, and uh, contracting and transmitting the virus. So I think vaccines should be made available. I have no problem with testing regimens if airlines want to test people to make sure that people boarding a plane aren't carrying a communicable virus. That makes sense to me. But beyond that, it's way past the point where we should be returning to normal life. Because what we continue to refuse to do is assign a cost 
to these ongoing shutdowns and restrictions, the fact that kids continue to have their schools closed two years into the pandemic, that young adults have their colleges constantly shut down. Their college is an incredibly important time, young adulthood, to develop social bonds that are being denied. There are now standardized test results showing that American children are performing worse on standardized tests than any time in decades because remote learning doesn't work. It's causing mental health crises all over the world, which makes complete sense. Two years of isolation and shutdown and disruption to normal life. But a lot of people seem not to care about that. And I'm starting to suspect that one reason is because there are a lot of people who are elites in Western life who don't have children and therefore don't think very much about the effect on kids or don't care much about it. And I'm not saying that judgmentally. Before I became a father, I think I probably thought less about the effect of public policy on children than I do now that I am a parent. That's normal and natural. But I think what this all reveals is the refusal to get something largely resembling normalcy, pre-COVID normalcy, is starting to become a kind of pathology, a mania. And the fact that the period of 24 hours completely reversed itself shows how all of this is bereft of scale. So that's the COVID impact with regard to Australia. Let me just spend a few minutes talking about January 6th. Um, we're about a half an hour. Been primarily interested in January 6th, it as an attempt to wildly exaggerate what it was. The orthodoxy, the mandatory narrative in most establishment corporate liberal circles is to refer to it as a coup or an insurrection, an attempted coup or an insurrection. I've always found that completely preposterous. The idea that 800 or 1,000 largely Gen X and Boomer Trump supporters were going to overthrow the most powerful armed and militarized government ever known to mankind because of a three-hour riot that took place at the heart of American power is completely laughable. Not a single person, not one person who participated in that riot, wielded a weapon inside the Capitol. Not one person is charged with pulling out a gun or using a knife. The only people who died on January 6th, there were a grand total of four, were all Trump supporters. Trump supporters didn't kill anybody, contrary to the lies that the media continues to to tell about that. The only people who died on January 6th were four Trump supporters, two of whom dropped out of a heart attack, one of whom dropped dead from a speed overdose and the other Ashley Babbitt who was shot, even though she was unarmed by a Capitol Hill police officer at point blank range and killed on the spot. Those are the four people who died. They didn't kill anybody. It was Trump supporters who were killed. One year after the January 6th riot, despite the justice department being controlled by the Biden administration, the grand total of people who have been charged with, insurrection or inciting insurrection or sedition or treason is zero, zero. How can media outlets justify continuing to refer to the January 6th riot as an insurrection when the FBI, by its own account, 
under a Democratic Party administration, has undertaken the most extensive law enforcement investigation in the history of the FBI. They've charged over 700 people with crimes, and not one of them has been charged with inciting an insurrection. Obviously, they might at some point in the future, but thus far, a year into this, they haven't. The narrative doesn't fit the facts at all. Why is it so important to call this an incident? Why is it so important to talk about this protest that turned into a riot, as happened dozens of times over the summer in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter and Antifa protests? Why is it so important to treat this as a world historic event, even though it was a three-hour riot that killed nobody? It's because if you call something an insurrection, if you claim that there's a serious insurrectionary movement in the United States, that's a national security crisis, a domestic crisis. It means that the Trump movement is not just a movement that has, from the perspective of authorities, a bad ideology. It means that they're criminals, that there's a criminal insurrectionary element inside the United States. That's what they believe, that this is a, a movement that is an existential threat to American democracy. And this is the kind of language and the kind of rhetoric that is always deployed whenever the state wants greater authority in the name of keeping you safe from some existential threat. It's very similar to what has been done with COVID. It's very similar to what was done in the first war on terror, where, at least in my view, the threat posed, reflected, or uncovered by the 9-11 attack, the threat of domestic terrorism from radical Islam was wildly overstated for two decades for the same reasons. The FBI constantly manufactured its own terror plots in the first war on terror by using infiltrators and informants to lure impressionable young Muslim Americans, 21, 20 years old, 22 year old, two years old, economically, unsta- emotionally unstable, manipulating them to do terror plots that they never would have done on their own. And then the FBI swooped in at the last minute and congratulated itself for stopping the terror plot that the FBI itself manufactured, just like they did for sure with the plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan and very likely to some extent, to some extent, did with the January 6th protest itself, where they clearly had at least some informants, if not full-scale infiltrators, embedded in the groups that they claim were responsible for those, for that protest. So there is an ongoing civil liberties assault, much, much greater, in my view, than the threat posed by the movement that caused the protest in the first place. But there's also this subsidiary uh, component that is really irritating me. And maybe it is just an irritant. Maybe it's, it's something more. But one of the things that's happening is the journalists who are present at the Capitol on that day are acting as if they spent the last seven years ensconced in some sort of war zone. There, 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 there are dangerous parts of being a journalist if you actually do journalism the right way. Journalists go to war zones and spend years there and have a lot of difficulty with post-traumatic stress disorder after the way soldiers do. And it's very real. I know a lot of good war, war correspondents who have suffered greatly from seeing people killed and bombs and 
children blown to pieces and just endless violence over the course of years. Some journalists are wounded in war. Some are killed. Those are really traumatic things to happen to journalists when doing their jobs. Other journalists are persecuted by the state. Today, in fact, is the 1,000th day, 1,000th day, that's a hard word to say, 1,000th day that Julian Assange has spent in Belmarsh Prison, which is the high security, maximum security prison in the United Kingdom that is built to hold terror suspects and mass murderers. In 2004, BBC called it the British Guantanamo Bay. It's a very harsh prison. Julian Assange has spent a thousand days in prison, in that prison, which is almost three years. Prior to that, he spent seven years trapped in a tiny building in central London where he had asylum from U.S. persecution in the Ecuadorian embassy. That's real persecution. That's real trauma. That's something that if you go through, you are scarred for life. Being in the capital for a few hours without being physically attacked, no journalist was killed, no journalist was wounded. These, the way these journalists are completely centering themselves and their own emotional difficulty as though they're brave and courageous reporters who have stood up to some power center, you know, got persecuted by the state, threatened with prison, were in the middle of a war zone, is nauseating. It's nauseating. It's like a therapy session. And it is in part a kind of ethos that I think has arisen in the last couple of generations of Americans who are trained to be coddled. The book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is about that. I recommend it highly if you haven't read it, where they're trained to essentially view any kind of discomfort as tantamount to some massive crime with no proportional uh, proportionality at all. It's kind of like the princess and the pea fairy tale where the princess is so coddled her whole life that even a pea under her 18th map sleeping. That's a respect. I think that it is part and parcel of something that's more than just an irritant, but a way that journalists have played a major role in exaggerating January 6th and the significance of it because they are the principal disseminators of this narrative that what happened on that day is equivalent to Pearl Harbor, the 9-11 attack, how traumatic it was for the country, and in terms of how grave the threat is that produced it. So I think it is more than just an irritant. Maybe I have a particular irritant because I happen to know what real journalistic persecution is, and it's not that. But I think it goes beyond that. I think it, it, it reflects the fact that it is journalists for their own self-interest and for their own ideological ends who have played the leading role in hyping and exaggerating and propping up this narrative that what happened on January 6th wasn't what it was, which was a three-hour riot, but was some uniquely traumatic insurrectionary attempt to overthrow the United States government in a coup, something that makes me laugh to this very day if I think about. So those are my observations on COVID, Djokovic in Australia, and the anniversary of, of 1-6. I'm happy to take questions on either any of that or on whatever else is on your mind. So I'm going to go ahead and take the first caller in the queue. Um, 
I have trouble seeing the name, so it's, it's okay, Glenn. Yeah, it's go okay. ahead and mute you can, All right, I hear you now. You can. Uh, hey, Gigi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I know that you used to get uh, belittled by you know anti-gay people back in the day calling you that. I think you mentioned that on Jimmy Dore shows a while, a while back. But I like Gigi. I think it's fun. But anyway, I want to bring up a few things. I see people are kind of queuing behind me. Um, one is I'm in Moyaldine. Uh, one is my interaction with uh, an Obama an economist on COVID. And one would be your reaction to Swalwell the swallow doxing uh, bullshit that happened last week. I hope I can curse. Um, what, was the, what was the first one? I didn't hear the first one well. I'm in Moyaldeen, the MSNBC journalist. He went to a New York City Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Yesterday yeah, with, his, with his four-year-old daughter, and there's no compulsory vaccination for four-year-olds in this country, and he was refused service or offered a seat outside in January, New York City, which is... Uh, basically a refusal of service i guess that that maybe would be my first thing and then if you will allow me to ask a couple more things i i would like to sure sure uh, so let me just let me try and address those uh quickly so for those of you who don't know um i'm a modine is a msnbc journalist i despise msnbc i don't think i made a secret of that but i think i'm on is actually a a very solid good journalist who does his best to be honest in the constraints of msnbc i like him he is um yeah i think he's a good guy and he went to a restaurant in i believe in new york where he lives um and the policy of the restaurant was you have to show proof of vaccination he was with his four-year-old daughter it isn't just that there's no vaccine mandate for four-year-olds he four-year-olds are not approved for the vaccine you cannot get your four-year-old child vaccinated even if you want to because it's not yet approved, only for five years and above. And they told him that he was welcome to come into the restaurant since he had proof of vaccination. But his four-year-old daughter was not welcome. She was barred. And he argued, and he said, how can you bar my young child from entering this restaurant when she cannot get a COVID? How can you split up family? She's not even eligible to get the vaccine. And they said, I'm sorry, they were adamant. They said, we don't want unvaccinated people here, even if they're four years old. That is the level of pathology we're at, especially in cities like New York that are dominated by liberal culture. The issue with Eric Swalwell was actually, obviously, I think, much more disturbing. Um, Essentially, what happened was, as many of you might know, Eric Swalwell has been in the middle of a controversy because it was determined that a woman who he dated was a Chinese spy. She had targeted him apparently for a romantic relationship. He expressed interest in her. They spent time together. He's on the House Intelligence Committee, and he had an affair with a Chinese spy. That has been heavily discussed in conservative outlets, obviously not much in pro-democratic outlets. And so somebody who had heard that story, just a random member of the public, sent him a message, according to him, saying, essentially, you're a traitor, you're guilty of treason, and you should be shot. He responded and tried to have a conversation with the person. Manipulatively. Very manipulatively. The whole point of the conversation was to try and find out what this person's name was. And soon as Eric Swalwell started having a conversation with this person... 
that person became very kind of, he changed his tone. He was like, you know, he kind of right away said, you know what? You seem like a nice guy. Um, I, I probably shouldn't have said what I said. I, you know, I apologize. I'm not that kind of guy. I didn't really mean that. I do wonder like what your answer is about this story. I'm interested in knowing your answer, but you know, he was very apologetic, very kind, very polite. And Eric Swalwell exploited that, 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 that kindness, that decency and lied to him repeatedly about being going to Vancouver, having family in Vancouver, where he found out the guy was saying that he would send business to his family. He asked the guy's name and then got the name of this guy, took those chats and published them on Twitter, claiming that the guy had made a death threat, which he didn't, Did saying not. that you deserve the death penalty is not a death threat, saying I'm going to come and hunt you down and kill you is a death threat. That's not what the guy said. Eric Swalwell docks this guy completely vindictively, manipulated him into giving him this private information by exploiting what Eric Swalwell lacks, which is basic human decency, and then got patted on the back for doing this by liberals, and then ended by saying, I'm going to leave it to law enforcement or Instagram in order to enforce the law, as though this guy had committed a crime by expressing his view that he ought to be charged with treason and, and, and punished for treason if convicted. So that Eric Swalwell is completely a moral scumbag is not news. He has lied for five years about Russiagate. But I found this to be a new low because this was a case where he wasn't lying about the sitting president, but had just taken this random citizen from the public and held him up for vilification and doxing for completely unjust reasons. Yeah. Yeah, that was I was when I saw it happen, I kind of saw it right when it happened. And I was like, I can't wait to see Glenn jump in on this. And I appreciate that. And and I 100 percent agree with what you just said and uh, was eager to hear you say that. Um, One aside, I recall when you I haven't ever spoken to you person to person. And I want to compliment you on when you uh, jokingly claim to uh, a script or uh, claim your uh, your allegiance to the Boogaloo Boys at the intro to Jimmy Dore's show several months ago. That was almost maybe over a year ago. Jesus Christ! But that was absolutely beautiful. And you and Jimmy should do like a thirty-minute bi-weekly comedy hour because you guys have a rapport that's quite amazing and and quite uh, funny to watch. Um, <clears throat> I have. There's this or uh, economist named Claudia Sam. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She was in the Obama administration, I think in the Federal Reserve during that time. Um, and she correctly goes after Larry Summers, which is great. And she's dead right about that. But, you know, recently I've had some interactions with her. And she usually responds to me on Twitter. And I have, you know, like 100 followers and she's got thousands. And I appreciate that when people are willing to listen to, to other other people's views and respond to them. Um, but you know, she said the vaccines are, are proven. They prevent transmission or diminish transmission. And yesterday she brought up this professor, Emily Oster, I believe her name is, Uh, who is talking about the issues with taking away schooling from children, which is a huge issue. In my opinion, the diminish, like, like you brought up earlier in your monologue, at the beginning of this, you know, the diminishment in, in test results, it's it's clear. There are huge ramifications from moving to out-of-school teaching 
remote teaching, remote learning, which isn't real learning, hands-on in classroom cannot be replaced. And, and, um, she wants to shut the schools down over, over Omicron. She thinks we should all go to, they should, I don't have kids myself, but I know you do. And I know she does. And, uh, you know, I just really, you know, 678 kids have died of COVID. Almost all of them had, uh, um, comorbidities. And I just, you know, if your kid has a comorbidity, then maybe they need to be on remote learning and that should be your choice. But compelling all students to stay at home, I find a real problem with. And, and the yeah, point no, I've made on, on is made wild, which is like. Yeah, I hear let you me just interject there just because I. Yeah, I want to I want to be able to get to to, to a couple other to a few other people, but I think again, I think like the issue of of school closing. Let me just let me just make this one point, um, and I really appreciate um, the the commentary. It's uh, you raised a lot of inter- interesting issues, and I hope you'll continue to come back. The issue about school closing that I just want to underscore. Um, I there's been a there's a huge class issue when it comes to, to school closures. If you are somebody who has a lot of financial resources, and this is true of shutdowns and, 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 and quarantines and isolation in general, you can manage the pandemic very well. Um, you know, we, I consider ourselves very fortunate. We were able for the first year to get out of the city, to rent a house in the mountains. So we were outdoors a lot. We didn't have to wear masks. Um, but my kids did have their schools closed for a full year. We had tutors, um, that they had learned with online. So they had that benefit, but a lot of families, most families couldn't afford to do either of those things. They were stuck in small apartments. They couldn't hire private tutors because those are expensive. So they just lost a year or a year and a half, um, when it came to, their kids' social and emotional and psychological and intellectual development. And on top of that, I'm fortunate to work at home, which means that if my kids are at home, I can take care of my kids. My kids also aren't young, the kind of age at four or five where they need constant attention. But if you're someone who has to go to work, you're a nurse or you're an essential worker, what do you do with your kids when they don't go to school? So, so often in liberal discourse, there's an emphasis on privilege and who's privileged and who's bearing the burden and how that affects your willingness to advocate for certain things. I do think there's been a big willingness to consider school closing in part because I think a lot of people who participate in the discourse don't have kids and therefore don't care. But also I think that the more resources you have, the easier it is to manage these kinds of restrictions. It falls, the burden does on people who, who are poor and the poorer you are, the, the heavier that burden falls. And that view is really represented at least on the national level in our media discourse. Um, let me take the next call. I think it is Jan. You can go ahead and unmute yourself. Are you there, Jan? Uh, the unmute uh, 
feature is, I think, in the lower right-hand corner, maybe on some phones in the lower left-hand corner, there's a microphone uh, icon that you just click, and you should be unmuted. So I'm going to go ahead and move to the next caller. If you figure that out and get back into the queue and I see you in the queue, I can put you um, to the front of the line. Uh, the next call I'm going to take is Amir. Go ahead, Amir. Hi, hi Glenn. Um, I have a... Um maybe an optimistic question, maybe for the beginning of the year, but I've been in your Q&As with Q and alone and to Matt Tabies and, you know, out of all this mess, I suddenly, you know, I, I suddenly feel that realignment, you know, like that it's real, like, and it's like a people that I, you know, normally wouldn't find myself, I mean, talking, yeah, like uh, in workplace or whatever, but, you know, not on a, my choice of uh, spending a weekday evening, you know, like um, sharing, uh, you know, the same space if you want and uh, and agreeing on so many things, you know, like I'm, I'm a Bernie bro and, you know, like it's still, uh, mo- I mean, not anymore, but you know, it was quite for a long time a, 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 not, a not allowed position to have, you know. Um, and so I, I just wonder if like maybe, maybe this, um, um, you know, like the division part of the, 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 their efforts to, Maybe it's a diminishing, at least, or settling, you know, like maybe not diminishing, but settling, you know, like to where there are no more gains to be made. Like, I mean, I feel it like uh, with whoever I could in my family, in my circles, I maintained it. And, you know, like, because I don't believe in that, but some people don't see it. And again, not vaxxed, all that stuff is, you know, all the stuff you were just talking about. So I, I was just wondering if maybe there's like a, is it me, New Year's? And wanting to be optimistic, or um, is it something that maybe others feel like, you know, like, or you have an opinion on? Thanks. Yeah, you know, thank you. Um, I actually share that optimism. Um, I posted today on Twitter a video excerpt from the latest episode of Joe Rogan's program where his guest was Oliver Stone. They were discussing primarily uh, Oliver Stone's most recent documentary that examines whether the official story about the assassination of JFK stands up to scrutiny. I've always been open to the possibility that it's not, but by no means convinced either way. The one thing that disturbs me is the fact that 60 years later, enormous numbers of documents remain classified in connection with the investigation of that assassination and the CIA's role. Why? Why? What possible reason is there for that? But one of the things they were talking about was the, the growth of independent media. The fact that the way in which corporate media has almost completely lost the faith and trust of the public, with the exception of a very small, homogenized group of like-minded ideologues, has created this space in which new of the media ecosystem can emerge. He can talk about it. The by Carlton, and generally Joe Rogan is having an audience size two, three, or even four times greater than Tucker's, and I. It has spawned, you know, it has made people realize that there is a very 
widespread and genuine craving on the part of the public for new types of media. And it is producing new platforms like Rumble, like Substack, like this one that we're on right now, which I believe is going to grow in leaps and bounds, especially once within the next couple months or couple weeks or whenever it happens, it's made available on Android, where people can reach large audiences using this technology because the people who are developing it are committed to free speech. So they're not going to deplatform you if you wander outside of the ideological bounds and the technology itself allows you to reach huge numbers of people without needing corporate support and corporate structure. Obviously there is some corporate structure. Joe Rogan's show is heard on Spotify, but he developed his audience before he went to Spotify just by being on YouTube. There's some corporate structure to Substack and Rumble and this app, it has, you know, venture capital money and the like. So it's not completely organic, but the, the point is, the people who use these platforms aren't answerable to a corporate hierarchy are free to say whatever it is we want. And that is more than anything, my cause right now, my cause is not a particular ideology. It's not a particular issue. It is fortifying the parts of our media space that allow free inquiry, free discourse and independent thought, independent journalism for voices to be heard that would otherwise be excluded, that liberate us from big tech repression and censorship and tyranny. Because without that, without free speech, without the ability to have independent journalists and independent voices, freed of corporate pieties, nothing will be possible. The only thing we will ever hear are things that Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper and Joe Scarborough and Rachel Maddow approve or that the editors of the New York Times and the Washington Post want you to hear, or that the Atlantic and the New Yorker thing should be disseminated, which is basically all the same. They have all the same ideology. And if we're stuck, imprisoned within that world, with only Fox News and a couple of other dissidents, that I think is a very dangerous world. And when you add on top of that, the ability, the increasing ability of Silicon Valley to remove from the most influential internet platforms, any dissident voices, even ones on Fox News, or elected officials, as they did this weekend with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the elected representative of, of from Georgia, as they did when Donald Trump was the sitting president. You're talking about a very powerful uh, system of coercion and control and, 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 and thought manipulation. And that's why I do think the emergence of this ecosystem is so encouraging. And I also find it interesting that you began by saying you are a Bernie bro or we're a Bernie bro. I made this point today. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me about Joe Rogan's audience is not just the size, but the fact that it's impossible to pigeonhole ideologically. You know, I mean, people want to claim that he's on the right if they're, if you're on the left, he supported Bernie Sanders. He said his favorite candidate was Bernie Sanders followed by Tulsi Gabbard. How is anyone going to say that Joe Rogan is on the right? But he's also not on the left. He constantly questions and deviates from leftist orthodoxies as well. What he is is independent. And that fosters this ideologically diverse audience, which people may want to deny. For years, it was claimed that my audience was far left. Now it's claimed my audience is far right. It was never far left. It was always an ideological mix of leftists and independents and libertarians and even conservatives. And the same is true now. Um, and that is something that encourages me a lot, not just the growth of these spaces 
in terms of audience size, but the type of people who are listening as I well. I think it's the same audience, you know, like if I think you can pigeonhole, you know, like it's no nonsense kind of people, you know, like it's, I, I don't care what you do. I don't care, you know, like don't harm anybody. And, and not in that, that fake liberal way, like really like across the board, like, you know, like what I want for myself, I, I, I don't have to be reminded to afford others, you know, like it's, it seems clear, but the, what we got is that one day we woke up and realized, like, I've been a no, I believe to be myself to be no nonsense, know the truth, and realize that everything I everything I know is not the case. It's not the truth, you know. Like, I grew up in Israel and watching Abby Martin's documentaries about Gaza and about, you know, I realized that the entire history I was told was, you know, questionable, you know, <laughs> and and obviously here. So I think what people are looking is for the truth, like. You know, like, that's it. Like, it's it, no, and nothing else doesn't matter who it is. If the truth is, has one version, you know, like, especially when it comes to the news, like one thing happened, you know, but you can try to change it. But, you know, so for what it's worth, I guess. So, oh, by the way, so I, Marion Williamson, I don't know if you heard about that, but Marion Williamson had a podcast yesterday and the guy said an interesting sentence. He said that the 1980s election, uh, the chief, joint chief auctioned it out. So I don't, do you know anything about any stories like that? I guess it's no, coming no, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't hear that. So check uh, it out. Yeah, I will definitely do that. All right, somebody, Amir, thank you, yeah, thank thank you, you very much. Thank you so much. It's always great to hear from you. I appreciate your coming back. Um, you always have great things to say, and tonight was no exception. So thank you so much. Um, next up uh, is Reed. Let me make sure I figure this out correctly. Go ahead, Reed. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, this is a kind of a follow through to the last caller in some ways, and I'm actually a little bit more skeptical and maybe not as positive. Um, you know, I'm sort of, it's great that you're doing this today because of the Djokovic thing and the one six tomorrow. I live in New York City and I have a lot of sort of more, you know, educated, you know, more upper income people who, consume a lot of NPR, they consume a lot of um, The Cut, New Yorker, New York Times. And I find there's sort of like this way in which like this amount of information that's flowing through them that's making them like, I got a couple of texts from people, yay, so glad Djokovic got sent home. Oh my God, I'm so afraid about tomorrow being 1-6. And I guess my question to you is, I'm wondering if you find if there's any kind of journalism that we could do that would highlight how this flow of information is setting a certain agenda. Matt Taibbi did a great piece around um, NPR and their coverage of the um, the free speech issue. He had a great article about it. And then NPR didn't include anyone who was a free speech absolutist. It was all people on the other side. And I kind of find this flow of information is heading one way. And if you had any thoughts around how to address some of that. I mean, I, you know, I shared the pessimism when it comes to these establishment liberal media outlets. I think they're gone. You know, like, I, I don't think they can be reformed. I mean, be, you know, I've been a critic of CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, NPR, all those, The, the Atlantic, for years. They've gotten radically worse, radically worse because of, of Donald Trump. And I think two things happened. One is the cynical business motive, which is they realized before Trump that their model was failing and they saw in Trump this golden goose 
who could scare people so much that, especially liberals, that it would make people consume enormous amounts of politics and political content, which previously they never did. It caused an entire new generation of people who never paid attention to politics to start obsessively consuming political content, buying books, buying subscriptions. So it was very valuable to them from a business perspective. But I actually think that secondary, I don't actually, maybe it's naive, but I don't think most people have this Machiavellian conscious uh, kind of bad faith view of the world where they consciously say things they don't believe because it benefits them monetarily. Obviously some people do that, but I don't think most people do. I think it's a, I think we're, we're, we're social and political animals, which means that we are very swayed by groups. And ironically, the person who wrote, at least one of the best books I read on this dynamic is Chris Hayes, the 8 p.m. host of MSNBC, who I was friends with for a long time. I no longer am. And he, before he went to MSNBC, was at The Nation. He was always very far to the left of the Democratic Party. He got his own weekend show on MSNBC that they didn't really care about because nobody watched it, so he was able to do more radical things. And right as he was about to get his 8 p.m. job as a host, a nightly host, and start making millions, whatever it is, from Comcast, he wrote a book called Twilight of the Earth. And he described why institutions have largely failed, why meritocratic institutions shouldn't be trusted any longer. And most of the book, or a lot of the book, was devoted to what he called cognitive capture, by which he meant that that the way our brains work is such that we are very swayed by the influences that surround us. And if you enter an elite institution, an academic institution, a corporation, a media conglomerate, no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you believe you're entering it only in order to subvert it from the inside, eventually it will start subsuming your thought process. Because the only people that you will talk to are people who think a certain way. The reward system that you'll constantly get rewards for embracing a certain worldview and punishments or deprivations for contravening it. And if you look at what life must be like working inside one of those cable networks or inside the New York Times, obviously they're only talking to people similar to the people who think like your friends. They don't hear dissent ever. Like the article that Matt Taibbi wrote on NPR. How can you possibly have a segment about whether, about Marjorie Taylor Greene being banned from Twitter or this spate of censors and not have somebody there like me or him or someone from the ACLU, the old ACLU, or anybody who says, I think this is dangerous for, this, for, for social media to be censored. It's not like it's a fringe view. They just don't air dissent. And if all you hear is your a certain worldview constantly reinforced, constantly flattered, constantly validated, and no dissent permitted, and the only people who dissent, the only way you ever hear about them are you're told to hate them. They're racist, they're white nationalists, they're bigoted, they're fascist. These are very powerful forces. So I completely agree with you that pessimism is warranted when it comes to these liberal enclaves, people who feed on these media outlets, 
people who work inside them, I believe they're truly converted. It's like a cult. I don't think that they're pretending. So I've written them off. What I, the cause of optimism I have is the ability to reach millions of other people who in turn can slay other people in their lives, who can lure other people in. You just see it in the numbers that independent outlets are starting to develop very large audiences. I mean, you know, I kind of call it Roganism. I think, I don't know if he started it, if Joe Rogan is just kind of the, the, the kind of, you know, symbol of what I'm describing. But he is arguably the single most influential political voice in the country. And he is somebody who can't be controlled. And there is a lot of other kind of satellite outlets and platforms like it that have been emerging and that have already are already emerged that are speaking to millions of people. And that is a positive thing. Thank you so much. I want to make room for other people, but I will say really quickly, a friend of mine's boyfriend sent me a text today in regard to Joe Rogan saying he's the biggest threat to our democracy today. And this is a liberal NPR, like all that kind of thing. And I just, my head exploded. But anyway, Glenn, thank you so much. Thank you for all you do. Yeah, right. Thank you. I just like, but it, it, I just want to say, like, how amazing that is. Joe Rogan supported Bernie Sanders, right? right. He didn't support exactly. Joe Biden or like Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren. He supported the most left wing candidate in the Democratic primary, maybe one of the most viable left wing viable candidates in decades. And people who are in the Democratic Party want to turn around and proclaim him a right wing fascist. That shows how little tolerance there is for any kind of dissent of any kind. And that's why I say, like, I don't have any hope for them. And I've written them up and as sort of lost in a cult. Um, thank you, Reed. That was fantastic. Jonathan, go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi, Glenn. Can you hear me all right? Yep, I can hear you great. Perfect. Um, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Really big fan of your work. So I recall that you posted a video uh, a couple months ago, I think, regarding uh, the refusal to apply a cost-benefit analysis to COVID. And that's something that I think um, really resonated with me in terms of my family situation. I'm actually someone with pretty high confidence in the efficacy of the vaccines. Um, And my parents, they're both of retirement age, um, both quite conservative Christian. They were reluctantly vaccinated early last year. And then At this point, for various reasons, they are not open to receiving the booster shot, which, of course, I recognize is their prerogative. But um, looking at the the media um, discourse surrounding the vaccines, I feel like it's just really become so toxic and difficult to have any, you know, clear headed conversation about it. Like, for example, the Djokovic situation, I first heard of it because I have the unfortunate distinction of following the New York Times on Instagram. <laughs> so I saw the article about it there. You know, I, I follow them mainly out of a sense of morbid curiosity, not because I am so into their coverage. But all the comments were so infuriating to me. It was just this really common mindset you see among a lot of um, American liberals that, you know, vaccinated people, oh, it's they deserve the disease if they get it. Um, all this really terrible stuff like that. And I would add that, you know, I don't know Djokovic's situation. It honestly could be possible for him to have a legitimate 
medical reason to not be vaccinated. Like, I don't believe physical fitness is, you know, necessarily an indicator of the safety in getting the vaccine. For example, I have a friend from college. Um, she was an avid gymnast as a child. She spent time as a competitive dancer during college, and she actually became uh, vaccine injured following the first um, two dosages of the Pfizer vaccine. She essentially had long COVID symptoms for months and months. She had to stop working because it impeded her ability to do her job. So I'm just wondering, do you think um, the, the liberal media, if Donald Trump were still president, would be so incentivized to downplay the potential risks of the vaccine? Because I actually just got my booster yesterday and I've been fine, but I I just wish there was a way to reliably um, discuss things with my parents. And I think part of the media's downplaying of that vaccine makes it hard to do that for people like me who, you know, are confident in the vaccine to talk with people like my parents. And I really apologize. I just realized some company I was expecting uh, came early, so I have to drop off. But thank you for taking my call and feel free to just respond to my question after I've dropped off. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there were a couple issues that issue that I want to kind of highlight and draw out is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is the idea that I do think it's true that oftentimes media outlets have become so propagandistic and so agenda-driven and such byproducts of groupthink that it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to know what to believe. I remember when Donald Trump got covid and there were all kinds of claims that he was near death and other kinds of claims that he was perfectly fine. And I had no idea who I should believe. I don't believe what's in the New York Times at all anymore, which is, you know, terrible. I don't believe everything that's in there is false. I still read it. Sometimes they present information in a way that convinces me it's likely true if I can see the underlying evidence for it. But I don't have any faith or trust in their pronouncements or in anybody else's, really. And I think, you know, when it comes to, I'm not, you know, when I had to make decisions for myself and for my family about whether to get vaccinated, whether to get the, bo the, the booster, whether to, we'll have, all have to choose whether we get the next booster and probably the next one after that, about how much risk we should undertake with masks and other decisions. These are very complicated choices that involve high-level questions of epidemiology and virology that I'm nowhere near competent to make, like most people aren't. And it is nothing short of tragic that we don't have centralized institutions that we can trust in order to rely on them. We need those. You know, I wish that I trusted Dr. Fauci. I wish that I could listen to public health officials, but I watched them spend the first four months of 2020 from February to May telling everyone don't leave home under any circumstances because it's not safe and then change on a dime when political pressure got too high and they were basically forced to say that everyone should go out on the street 
participate in protests for people and yelling at one another. And that made me realize that I couldn't trust any of the people to just jettison knowledge at the altar of, of political gain. And I find that to be, just for myself, a very disorienting and problematic situation to be in. And, you know, I think, I wish we had a society where these institutions were trustworthy. I don't celebrate the loss of faith and trust in media outlets, except for the fact that it is deserved. I wish it weren't deserved. I wish these we had media outlets that actually were worthy of trust and, and faith. Those are important. Um, the next caller is Kevin. Go ahead, Kevin. Hello. Yeah, I can hear you. Hi, Glenn. How are Good. you? I've been a fan, fan of your work since the salon.com days. Thank so you. I've been around. A long time. Yeah. Uh, well, at the beginning of the show, you said something very hurtful that I was concerned about when you even suggested that Djokovic might be better than Federer. I, 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 I look, I swear, I mean, I promise you it hurts for me to say that. I've been resisting it for so long. I'm a huge fan of Roger Federer. I never liked Djokovic's game. I, But at some point, facts are facts. And it, <laughs> I, But I, I, I still choked on those words. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. All right. Uh, so a question I've been having for a long time is you, it's clear that your your enemies are the liberal corporate media because of and their connections to like the the deep state or CIA and stuff like that. They regurgitate their stenographers. They don't tell the truth. They misinform constantly. I get all that, but you also say that their power is decreasing because of the no one's listening to them anymore. They are losing viewers. Everyone's going independent, going to YouTube and Twitch. Do you think there's ever a time when you have to stop going after them and instead go after YouTubers or Twitch stars and people that are replacing that power center? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I think it's important not to overstate their lack of influence. And a lot of times people, I think, have been getting a little bit confused and maybe it's my fault, you know, when you express things on Twitter, you're inviting people to to be confused or to sometimes misunderstand what you're saying just because of the medium. But when I mock or celebrate or just point out the reality that people don't watch MSNBC and CNN, meaning the cable news shows hosted by, you know, Don Lemon and Anderson Cooper and Lawrence O'Donnell and Joy Reid and all those people that their audience is minuscule and shrinking by the day. That's true. But that doesn't mean that those organizations don't wield a lot of influence. Even though nobody watches those programs on television, CNN's website still has a huge number of people who go there. They are on social media, and same with NBC News, which is a huge corporate conglomerate, um, can still blast out their articles and uh clips of segments from those cable shows. They have millions of people who follow them on Twitter. They spend a lot of money to make sure that they're in a lot of homes 
obviously outlets like NPR are listened to by millions of people. The New York Times and the Washington Post are increasingly successful uh, models of, from a business perspective. I think you're seeing media consolidation. A lot of local news and a lot of digital outlets are going out of business because they all sound like the New York Times and everything is consolidating under a few giants like is happening in some of the other industries. So I think it's important not to overstate their lack of influence. But I think increasingly they're speaking to this kind of click, this this like-minded group that may be a very, very large group. They are a large group, but you can kind of start writing them off and deciding that what you want is to reach people who aren't immersed in that. I do. Significant people on primarily devoted to a lot of it. I know there's a lot of people on enormous audience, a lot of cultural influence. But for people who do news and political commentary, there may be RFU. I occasionally discuss some of them, same people who have podcasts. Um, but yeah, I take your point. I think that as the face of the media uh, ecosystem changes, if you want to serve as a check on the people who build a lot of power and influence, which I do still think is an important job of a journalist, it's important to start changing with it and looking at who is speaking to the greatest number of people. Okay. Yeah, it's good. You cut out a little bit, but it was, it was a good answer. And uh, the last thing I wanted to say before the next person yep. is I think the school, the school issue and COVID policy in general is just going to get Democrats completely wiped off the map in 2022 and probably 2024. And Tra- Michael Tracy, he's been talking a lot about the college stuff. The kids and the parents, they're all fed up. So I'll, I'll, I'll exit on that. Well, if you look at what happened in Virginia which really started to become not a purple state, but a blue state. If you look at the polling data that was done, the analysis by Democratic consultants about why Glenn Youngkin won and Terry McAuliffe lost, there's very little doubt that school closures, which were blamed on Democrats, was the number one cause. More so than these cultural issues about what's being taught in schools. Because people, I mean, people's children are very important to them. And it is incredibly disruptive to life to have your kids out of school. Um, I mean, just imagine if you're a parent, you watch your kid go from 11 to 12 and then 12 to 13 or 9 to 12 or whatever without seeing their friends, without being in class. You, everyone remembers how central school was to our development. And for them to just keep closing schools out of deference to unions when there's a vaccinated population, um, I think you're right that they're going to start to pay a big political cost, and I think it's going to be really well-deserved. All right, I think I have time for one more caller, um, depending on how it goes. So, as as usual, if you end up in the queue and I don't get to you, I apologize in advance. Keep coming back. Um, I'm going to always try and devote more time, and like I said, we do have another show that I have with uh, Q Anthony that I co-host tomorrow on Redacted at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, where we're going to talk about a lot of these same issues. So feel free to come back to that as well. I'm going to try and take a couple more, but it might just be one. Let's see how it goes. Next up is Jackson. 
Hi, Glenn. Uh, I'll try to make it quick. I, I feel compelled to um, give sort of a personal story because uh, I'm a 2020 college graduate and we're talking a lot about education here. And I feel like, you know, I didn't receive a stimulus um, and it, it pro progressing to my master's program was a, a big challenge for me. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't do very well with online education. That being said, I think I made it out relatively easily compared to, you know, all these young kids who are going to go through a lot more, in my opinion. Um, I, my degree was in biology, and uh, I tried to sort of make some predictions as COVID began to, to test my research ability and just to see where my, um, my sourcing was at. And I, uh, on Australia in particular, I was, um, I, I had predicted that it was uniquely positioned of any major nation to stand the best chance at, at reducing COVID transmission or preventing large outbreaks just because they have uh, very unique um, biodiversity infrastructure and they have very secure um, ports of entry. So I think uh, um, there's a point to be made that Australia of any nation may have a bit of uh, leniency when it comes to COVID policy just because um, they did keep their transmission very, very low for, for the longest period of time. Um, but I think once we've reached the, the vaccine phase and now, especially with these highly transmissible variants, um, it's kind of irredeemable, the, the draconian measures that they're imposing. Um, so my question is, how do you think we can move out of these uh, draconian measures? And will it take something like um, maybe reconciling with the fact that we did possibly have to proceed with caution in the early days and just, uh, you know, use some some judgment and that risk benefit analysis and maybe concede that uh, some of these policies may have actually helped people. Yeah, um, you know, I use my, my reference point for these debates often is the first war on terror. It's, it's what impelled me to leave law and to start writing about politics. I devoted 12 or 14 years of my work as a journalist to covering the war on terror and believing and warning about what I thought were excessive responses and erosions of civil liberties, meaning that the fear side of the equation was exaggerated and overemphasized and the costs of the policies enacted in the name of stopping that risk were ignored. And one of the things I realized was there are certain costs that are more easily visible and exploitable because they're more visceral. So you might say we're losing a lot of privacy by allowing the government to spy on us without protection. Due process is being eroded by allowing the government to imprison terror suspects without trial. But the person who comes and says 3,000 people were murdered on 9-11 and civil liberties don't matter if you're dead. just as real, if not more so, 
are more difficult to apprehend. And the person who's advocating the less visceral uh, cost be weighed is always at a disadvantage. That's exactly what happened here. I think you put your finger on it. If you remember the narrative at the beginning for the entire first year when there was no COVID vaccine, we were inundated with horrible stories, nightmares about France and Spain and Italy and obviously China about people dying in hallways in, 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 in COVID wards and doctors having to make decisions about who gets incubated and who doesn't based on their probability to live or other factors. I mean, horror stories that were ingrained in our brains because that's an important drive that we have is fear. It's how we, we survive. And I think you're absolutely right that it's rational to adjust how you view the pandemic once a vaccine comes, but as long as those fears are being stimulated still for people for their own reasons, it doesn't really matter. It's almost as if our brains have been trained to respond to COVID in a certain way that as long as people are dying, that's the end of the story. And keeping kids out of school or having people wear masks or having people stay home, less connected to society. Sure. There may be long-term mental health costs from that, but it's not as immediately apparent. It's not as visceral as reading about somebody dying of COVID. And I think there's still a lot of difficulty in having rationality prevail because of that dynamic. And I saw that in, in the war on terror, the first war on terror as well. Thanks for that, that question. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and take one more, and this will be the last one. So my apologies to everybody else in the queue. Please come back. Uh, Go ahead, Nick. Hey, Connie, can you hear me? I can hear you. Great. Um, Can you give a brief synopsis about the evidence of the government's use of informants on January 6th um, and provide your perspective on, right, was their level of involvement similar to Right, the uh, what you, like you described as entrapment during the war on terror, such as the Harold Square bomber or the Gretchen Whitmer's uh, involvement, or is the evidence not that severe? It seems that you know it's hyperbolic to say it was an insurrection, but also at this point, based on available information, it's hyperbolic to say it was a false flag operation or entrapment or something like that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree that we're not in any place to say it was a false flag operation or anything like that. Um, but what? So I, I will find myself, which is what I always find, what I know. So the difference that use the would be absolutely for the vast majority of domestic terror plots it claimed to disrupt, they were plots that didn't emerge organically that the FBI discovered, but instead were ones the FBI concocted by introducing the idea of that plot into a group of people who were not looking to engage in terrorism. In other words, they used informants and infiltrators in order to turn people into terrorists who without the FBI would not have been. And many people went to prison, even with the judges in their cases, recognizing that we know for certain that of the three key right wing groups that the FBI claims were most responsible for organizing the January 6th protests, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys and the three percenters, 
that the FBI has informants in all of those groups. We know that the FBI had informants in, in the Proud Boys because the leader of the Proud Boy himself used to be an FBI informant. We know from the Gretman Whitmer case that the FBI, which has long been warning that right-wing extremist groups are now the number one national security threat, that they've been using these tactics to infiltrate those groups. And so it leads to the necessary question of what role did the FBI play? How much did the FBI have its hooks in people who participated in the planning of the January 6th uh, protest? And to ask that question or even to say that you know that the FBI had some role doesn't mean that it was a false flag. It doesn't mean people hadn't been organizing it independent of the FBI. What it does mean, though, is that some of the ringleaders, some of the people encouraging it, were likely working with the FBI or being informants of the for the FBI while it was happening. We know for sure that the FBI had at least one informant on the ground, at least one, because the New York Times reported that. There was an informant for the FBI participating in the January 6th protest, communicating in real time with the FBI as the protest was unfolding. There's reason to question whether they had other informants there because many of the people that we've seen on video and elsewhere seeming to be ringleaders have yet to be arrested, let alone prosecuted. I would have a lot more respect for the January 6th Congressional Committee if it were interested in asking that question, but it's not because it's only interested in pushing a particular narrative. So I think that what we can say for certain is that these are tactics we know the FBI has used in the first war on terror. These are tactics we know the FBI has used in the second war on terror against domestic extremists. And we know for certain that at least in one case, and I think in a second now it's confirmed, the FBI had informants on the ground with whom it was communicating, at least in the days leading up to the January 6th protest, if not uh, while it was happening. And so there's an open question about what else the FBI knew about the people who participated in it, with whom they were working, how many of those people. And we just don't have the answers because thus far the Biden Justice Department or the Congressional Committee, the bodies armed with subpoena power to find that out, have refused to do so. And so I agree with you. We need to be careful not to assert things we don't know. But we're faced with that same situation where the people who do know and who should tell us aren't telling us, which means that these suspicions are rational. All right. Well, um, that was a a great 90 minutes. Um, I'm incredibly impressed and enthused about the fact that almost in 100% of the cases uh, where people have come and asked questions or offered comments since the very first show, they've been extremely high quality, thoughtful, thought-provoking, and informed. It makes me even more optimistic about the future use of this platform, which is definitely going to grow, obviously, as people who use Androids are able to download the app, which should happen shortly. All shows uh, are automatically stored on the call-in website. So each person who hosts a show has their own page. You can just use Google or whatever else you use to search and, and find my show or anybody else's show. You can also obviously listen to them on this app. Um, there's a great tool that allows not just but any of you to take clips of things that were interesting or relevant and turn them into social media clips. You just look at the transcript and uh, scroll over the part of the transcript that you want to take the clip of and 
it generates really quickly. So that's one of the great features of this app as well. People have been spreading social media clips of themselves and other people. Um, so I encourage you to kind of explore this app. I'm, I'm really excited about this platform. It's only going to grow, not just in terms of numbers, but also features as we go along. So thank you, everybody who came. Um, for anyone in the queue, please come back. Uh, and I hope everybody has a, a great night. And if you can, tomorrow, 4.30 p.m., uh, I'll be doing the show I co-host with Q Anthony. So I hope to see you there as well. Have a great night.